Good morning. Y'all can have a seat. If you don't know me, I'm Matt Schwartz. I'm the pastor of worship and operations here, and it uh, brings me great joy, as always, to bring you the Word of God, to open it up together, to learn about it, and to hopefully know more about God, know about more about ourselves and, and how we should and can live in light of that. Uh, this morning, uh, and then next week will be our last week in the Psalms officially. Uh, Pastor Daniel will be back, and his first Sunday preaching will be September 11th. He'll give us uh, kind of a, an eye in to the last four months of his life, and, uh, and you can continue to pray for him so he finishes well. I know anytime you come home from a vacation, and it's been a very long, not a vacation, but you know what I mean. Once you've come home from something that you've been away from, it takes a little bit to re-engage your brain and, and everything. So um, just prayers for him and his family uh, this week, especially as we transition back into um, business as usual here at Terranova Church. Our next series that will be starting in October will be a study on the book of Ruth, which we're very excited about. That's going to take us a few months to get through that. Um, there's a wonderful book that we've uh, asked our, our tribe leaders to read and one that I would recommend to you highly. It's called A Loving Life by Paul Miller, and that book walks through the story of Ruth, and it's a phenomenal read. It's not very long, and it's very easy to read. So along with opening the scriptures to Ruth and reading that and kind of getting to know that story, um, reading Paul Miller's A Loving Life would be a wonderful accompaniment uh, for, for that study. So we look forward to that. So we've been digging into the Psalms this summer and, and kind of understanding them deeper. Um, and I've certainly learned a lot about the Psalms and how they're constructed and how, why we have the Psalms. Um, and this Psalm in particular, Psalm 8, is very important. Um, all, of them, all of them are important, but it has special importance in the grander scheme of the entire Psalms, 150 Psalms. If, if you want to go uh, to YouTube, like I like to do, and, and find really good resources, um, the Bible Project by uh, Tim Mackey, uh, pastor and author and uh, writer out on uh, out in the West Coast, is does a wonderful job talking about how the Psalms are put together, and actually has a video specifically on Psalm 8. So I thought maybe I'll maybe I would just show that and go golfing this week and not study it all, but cause it's really good. It's really phenomenal. But I learned a lot from that and um, want to share some of those things with you today. Um, so before we get started into Psalm 8, the Psalms, as, as some of us know, there's 150 of them, but they can be broken up into five main sections. Let's call them books. Okay, and the first book, which contains chapters 1 through 14, um, starts with kind of an intro, chapters 1 and 2, um, introducing this idea of a promised Messiah, as we've been talking a little bit about um, how Psalms are prophetic the last few weeks. Um, the first two chapters will really introduce this idea well that God will, sign, uh, will send a Messiah through the line of David um, and, and, and he will be the one to deal with the evil and brokenness in the world. So that's, that's chapters 1 and 2. And then chapters 3 through 14 really show us and deal with the frailties of man. The, they call them, the, uh, the psalmist calls them the poor and afflicted ones, those that are ravaged by death and sin in the world. Um, and also we hear a lot of the, the strife and the trouble of King David, who is writing these psalms um, as he is kind of on the lamb, uh, uh, running away from uh, King Saul and in f uh, fear of, for his life. But smack dab in the middle of 3 through 14 is uh, Psalm 8, and it teaches us 
It teaches us that these weak and afflicted ones that this first book is really focusing on and talking about, um, it's actually those weak ones that God will fill with his glory, will fill with his presence, and it's actually with those weak ones that he will show his power and fill with his power, and those are the ones that he's going to choose to rule and help fight back the evil in the world. Okay, so the Messiah as being the um, the, the epitome, the, the pinnacle of that idea. So Psalm 8 is a really important one um, contextually in the greater understanding of the first book of the Psalms. Um, so I wanted, wanted to share that because I think that's actually important looking at this Psalm today. So let's read it together and then, uh, and then we'll jump in and, and learn some things. So let me read this for us and then we'll pray. You can open up to your, in your Bibles or your apps or it's on the screen behind me. As we just sang, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let me just pray for us. Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts and convict us um, and teach us of the places that we need to depend more on you, that, that we want to we look more like Jesus. And so I pray that as we work through this scripture that um, it would jump off the page and right into our hearts and minds and that you would help us understand um, more who you are and how much you love us and care for us and just the incredible glory that you choose to bestow on your children. We thank you for this word. Uh, bless our time. Amen. All right, so big idea for us this morning to kind of boil the psalm down. We're, we are going to go right through it, but just kind of boil it down with a big idea and then pick that apart. Um, is this, is that God's power and majesty are on display for all to see. Yet it is through the small things that he bestows the highest glory and honor, and through whom he chooses to show the world who he is. Did everybody get that? Kind of a long sentence. God's power and majesty are on display for all to see, yet it is through the small things that he bestows the highest glory and honor and through whom he chooses to show the world who he is. All right, so let's look at the most obvious part of this psalm. It starts in the beginning and finishes the psalm. This first major idea is just the unfathomable size, glory, and splendor of God. And it is so important here to the psalmist that he writes it twice, the beginning and the end. Now, the technical term here is called an inclusio. I'm not smart. I just It's called Google. Check it out. It's a wonderful uh, uh, resource. It's called an inclusio, where the beginning and the end are the same. 
So it's driving home that everything in the middle is based on those two outer points. They use it in Hebrew and Greek writing, um, and and it use it's kind of basically the term is kind of like a, a sandwich. So here's what we want you to know that. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. says it twice. So that's really the main idea, that, that God reigns over the earth on high with majesty. Now, it seems silly to me a little bit to spend um, much time at all this morning trying to convince you all that God's creation is masterful and awe-inspiring. It's very clear to every naked eye. Now, even to those of you who might not really believe in God or might, um, might be questioning if there is a God, I think the natural world gives us all pause and wonder to think, wow, this is amazing. So what's very clear in this psalm is about the glory of God is that there's, there's also not just this vast heaven, heavenly glory, but there's also order and there's delineation in things. So if we look at Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of the Bible about the creation of the world, we can see that Psalm 8 very much kind of, um, kind of reflects this sequence of events, this sequential orderly language. So, for example, day one God did this, day two God did this, he made a light for the night and a light for the day. There was morning, there was evening. There's structure and order in all of God's creation. He, it, says, it says frequently that um, s- such and such was made in its own kind. So he's really separating the natural order of the created world. Now as we look at Psalm 8, there's a, a list up here of as we go through the psalm, there's kind of a list in the order of the things at which, which get the most glory. So the psalm begins with, with verse 1 and then repeating verse 9 of God's name. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And then it says your glory is set above the heavens. And then it talks about that, that humankind was made but made a little lower than the heavenly beings. And so that's where we, that's where we are, a little bit below the heavenly beings. And then above that, we are above the earth's inhabitants plants and animals, etc. But what we see in this chart moves us towards kind of the meat of our discussion this morning because what is the highest thing on that list? It's an easy answer. God's name, right? God's name. Now you might say, well, well, Matt, that's just, that's kind of semantics and it all kind of means the same thing, but go with me here. Um, I think the psalmist is saying that really above all the things that God has made of the created things is the, the person of God. And the personhood of God is really the most glorious, the most majestic thing. Now, for anybody who has seen a snow-capped uh, rocky mountain or an ocean wave, just think for a moment that as glorious as those things are, there was a God that made that, that creatively and powerfully made that, thought of it ahead of time, and created that. A platypus. What a crazy-looking thing. God thought of that and made it. Giraffes. Crazy-looking creature. God made that. 
A narwhal. I didn't have, even have that in my notes. Narwhals. What a cool looking thing, right? What about like the ocean reefs or like a supernova that we can see through Hubble telescopes? God thought of all of these things. They were preconceived. They were constructed by someone. So therefore, we are not to worship creation. We are to worship the creator. And this psalm reminds us of this. So don't miss that in that psalm that there's a clear delineation that God's name is above all things. And he draws us in by his glory. He pulls us in. So as Romans 1 says, nobody has an excuse to not know who God is because he clearly shows us that. Also, it shows us that God is a personable God. He is not a distant deity just creating things for his own pleasure, but he's actually thinking of us and thinking of putting us in a beautiful and creative place. He is a God who desires to be known. I was trying to think of an example of this, and I thought, try this one. So maybe you have a father who bought you a mansion when you turned 16. He bought you a mansion and gave you three Lamborghinis and sent you to the best Ivy League school and took care of you, but you never met him. You didn't have a relationship with him. And he didn't reach out to you. Just gave you stuff. It's really knowing this person that brings everything together. This father could give you the most insane amount of gifts, but unless you know him personally, there's a disconnect. And I think we see in the glory of God that he gives us such a wonderful creation, a wonderful world. However, the true depth of the glory of God is in his name, in his personhood. In Advent, a few years back, two years in a row, we did, um, we looked at the names of God, and then we looked at how Jesus fulfills those names and those promises. Um, just a couple of those. Uh, here's are some, here are some names of God that we find in the Old Testament. Adonai means Lord, Master. Yahweh, Lord, Jehovah, the Lord saves. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Rach, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord heals. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is here. Now, what God has created is immense, but on top of all of this, it's his character and his nature. So we can be dazzled by what God has made, but let, let us be drawn to the one that made it. Verse 3 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you even care for him? So we're moving along here to this center of the chapter, which is the question. When we look at this stuff, who are we? It's a pretty common reaction, I think. We started by considering the majesty of God and 
really makes you feel small. Now, have you ever been in a place where you could really see the, scar the stars? Like, really? I mean, like, no light pollution. When I was in Alaska in 2017, I mean, it didn't get dark till about midnight when we were there, but we'd go out at 3, 4 in the morning and just watch the stars. It was, it was insane. I mean, it was the most stars. We were 263 miles from the nearest civilization. Um, in the big square of Alaska, those of you who know Alaska, it was, we were in the middle of nowhere, literally. It's kind of terrifying, actually, to be under such immense power, feeling so small. So just for fun, because we should have fun when we're learning, um, just for fun, here are, some, here are some facts about our universe. In case you didn't feel small yet, I'm going to try to help you with that here, okay? So our observable uni universe, so this is what we can understand, which I still don't know how they do it, but this is what we can understand with science and telescopes and that kind of thing, satellites. Our observable universe is approximately, approximately, 93 billion light years in diameter at the present day because they say it's growing. Um, anybody, uh, does anybody here know how far a light year is? Anybody know? I sure didn't. Again, Google is a wonderful thing. Um, so a light year is equal to the, um, the, the distance that light can travel in one year. And that distance is 5.88 trillion miles. Okay, so 5.88 trillion miles, so then times 93 billion light years. You can do the math if you want later. Um, that's big. That's really big. Now, our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, um, is suggested to have uh, possibly 100 billion stars. Now, think of our star, and how big it is, and how it supports our entire solar system and gives us life, and it's really big. Uh, the Milky Way galaxy, just our galaxy, they say has 100 billion or maybe even up to 400 billion stars. And new discoveries suggest um, that there are up to 285 galaxies for every person that's living on the Earth currently. So I think we're like 5 billion, 6 billion people or something like that. So that's big. That's, that's terrifying. Um, as, a, as a little kid, all my friends were like, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. And I was terrified of being an astronaut. You watch Apollo 13, that's terrifying when they get out. The, I've always been scared of space for some reason. I don't know. But um, I think we all should be uh, to some extent because we don't know what it is. It's just weird. Um, so to say when we encounter all of these facts in the, the known universe, to say, who am I? That's appropriate. I mean, I used to get bent out of shape when people would say I was 5'5", five, five, and I'm like, no, I'm 5'6". Get it right, please, okay? Like, who am I, God, that you created all of that? I am just a very insignificant speck of dust. I mean, really, in the grand scheme of things. But Psalm 8 says, sorry, Psalm 8 verse 5 says, yet, so with all of this knowledge, yet you have made him humans a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now curiously, it's, it's not the stars that receive a special crown or the incredible platypus or narwhal that receives the crown of glory. It's you and I, human beings, 
beings that God says in Genesis 2 was made from the dust of the earth. He made us out of the dust and breathed his life into us. Now, this notion of us being small and insignificant goes one step further. In verse 2, I know we're going backwards, but verse 2, it says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Babies. The smallest and the neediest ones. Those who are completely and fully dependent on others to care for them. Now, yes, we are dealing with poetry here, okay? But the idea here is clear. The message is clear that the creation of humankind down to even the smallest of us is actually God's most prized possession. The one that he crowns with glory and honor. For you and I are made, think about God, his name is above even the heavens right? You and I are made in the image of Almighty God. Let that sink in for a moment. You and I reflect the image and the nature of Almighty God that created all of this. It's fairly astonishing. It should be. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We carry his imprint. We carry his proud design and his intention. And he gives us work to do. Good work. Important work. We learn in Genesis 1 and 2 these things, but we also hear it from the psalmist here in verse 6. You have given him dominion over all the works of your hands. You have Put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So the pinnacle of God's majesty, friends, is you and I. Now, in relation to the rest of the universe, yes, the small things. In our 93 billion light year big galaxy, our creator God picked up a handful of dust, and he made us. Now think about it again. We talked, verse 2 talks about babies. That out of the mouths of babies and infants you've established strength. Think about, think about a baby. We've had a couple born like this month. We've had like two babies at Terraborn this month. Um, incredible. This is a small thing. That, and God goes even one step further and, and, and he takes a, a sperm and an egg two single cells and makes them come together and start budding life. This is life that begins that you cannot see with the naked eye. This thing, this life begins to grow and it comes out and develops into a being that can create itself, that can learn that can grow, that can exercise, that can taste and smell and feel and see and touch. Grows into a being that bears the image of Almighty God. And we are called to be fruitful, multiply and perpetuate the name of God in this earth. So let's remember 
through this understanding that God does not rule us from a distance. He does not rule us without a personal connection to his creature, through his creation. He draws us near to himself, displaying who he is, not just what he has created. And one of the ways he does this is he loves us, no matter how small. And he creates us in his image. The, the psalmist says in, um, in the 139th Psalm, says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is a wonderful fact. And it's awe-inspiring and maybe a bit daunting, but what does it really matter? I mean, do we sit back and pat ourselves on the back and say, we're so great, God made us this way, and we're, we got crowns and we're good to go? No, it's actually to be brought to our knees in submission, to give God the name of God. He's at the top of the list, remember? The name of God. We're supposed to give him glory and humbly carry his image and fill the earth with other image bearers and steward and govern well and caress the ground in which we tread from which we came. To show the earth who God is because we are in fact made in his image. I think I've said that a few times this this morning already. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the point is not to hold our God-given authority and honor and crown as a cudgel to dominate, but it's actually to serve the God that created us. Now that's the essence of what it means to be meek. There's majesty and meekness. Meekness doesn't mean weakness. Meekness actually means restraint. Knowing rightly who we are and actually humbly submitting under who God is and using our, using our God-given crown and glory with restraint. So this is pretty straightforward and easy to do, right? That's silly. No, Matt, no, it's not. It's not easy, right? The Bible is actually full of people who took their God-bestowed glory and, and, and honor and crown and actually usurped God and started using those to have dominion over others improperly. Does anybody have, can anybody think of any examples that from the Bible or not, where we have used our own authority to be, to, to bludgeon others and to hold others in control. I mean, lots of them, right? So the, the Tower of Babel, one of the early stories in the Bible, people were getting too smart for their own good and they thought that they were going to reach heaven and be God and be gods and, and reign and, and be in, but God said, nope. What about the Old Testament kings? That held, their, uh, that held their people like captives and prisoners? What about the Pharisees that used the, the law, they used the word of God to control people and to keep them in submission? What about racism in the world? That people decided that their color of skin was better than other people's color of skin. There's been governments set up like this, the apartheid. 
What about the irreversible environmental atrocities that we've seen in our lifetime that are based on not what's sustainable for the earth, but just what makes the most money? We're using our intelligence and our God-given authority improperly. So we might fall prey to these things, big or small, but our Bible is also a book, thankfully, about how Almighty God, out of love, saw that his creation was going in a direction that it wasn't intended to. And instead of um, chucking lightning bolts at us out of anger, he came down from his glory. Jesus set aside his glory. He became a baby. He came to us as a created life smaller than the naked eye, implanted inside the womb of a teenager named Mary, born into the dark and dank cave that was meant for animals, and lived in a poor and overlooked family and in a poor and overlooked town. This is meekness. The glorious King of Heaven humbled himself and came down and made himself small so you and I could know him. And we learn through the scriptures that this man, Jesus, the Son of God, would live a perfect life. But instead of getting a pat on the back, he went to the cross to die for us so that we could understand and know what it means to live out our God-given existence, our God-given image for the glory, not of us, but for the glory of God. Listen to Ephesians 2, 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's majesty and meekness. He showed the world that true glory, true majesty is found in love for one another. And that when we truly serve one another, when we truly humble ourselves, We glorify God. We understand better why it is that we are here. And it is the love of God and his desire to to know us and to be known that even through the mouths of infants, the darkness and the enemy are stilled and the foes are conquered. Philippians 2 continues on in verse 9. It says, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So what are the implications for us? If we believe that we are God's workmanship, if we believe that we are here to reflect his image and to ultimately give him glory, this will really change how we see the world. Now, I really encourage you to, um, the next slide, please. I'm going to encourage you all this week 
at the dinner table or in, in, uh, on a car ride or in your tribes. Um, ponder this question. I'm going to give us a couple help, uh, a, a, a couple uh, decent answers here, but I think this can be unpacked for a long, long, long time. As image bearers of God, let us be people who, how should it affect our lives? Remember our big idea this morning, that God's power and majesty are on display for all to see, yet it is through the small things that he bestows the highest glory and honor and through whom he chooses to show the world who he is. If that is our goal in life, if that is our charge, to show the world who God is, as image bearers of God, let us be people who, here's one, let us be people who protect life. Every life. From conception to old age, all life is made in the image of God and is crowned with honor and glory. Protect it. What about our natural world? May we be those who steward it well, to use our intelligence, our innovation, to to care for it and caress it, not beat it into submission. We don't need to leave it forever wild. Don't get me wrong, okay? We don't need to leave it forever wild. But I think we can learn how to work with and understand how it can and will care for us and we definitely have a, as some of you know, we have a few farmers in the room. Even somebody that farms insects, which I don't understand. But talk to a farmer sometime about humility. They will tell you, caring for this earth will make, make you humble. All right, so that's one. Protect life, because it's all from God. Number two, spread his glory. Well, that seems a little open-ended, but... Think about that some more. Spread his glory. Use your life to fill whatever space you're in with the amazing glory of God. Whether it's the bubble chair at Gore Mountain or it's the fishing boat you're in or whether it's in the high uh, CEO position you might be in in a boardroom. In your work, in your play, in your relationships, use the mind that God has made for you. Your body and draw others to God. Make your workplace better than it was before you came. Leave your home in the morning better than it was when you arrived. And in the beauty of God's creation, when you are experiencing his creation, turn your fun and your joy and your excitement into worship to God who created it for us. In our relationships, treat the other one as honored and a glorious image of a living God. And the last one, number three, and we'll have the band come up. Reflect God's meekness. If, if God shows us that true glory exists in his name and true glory exists in meekness, in sending his son down to save us, to humble himself, to turn our eyes back to him. If this is true, you and I also must use our crown not simply for power, use our glory not for selfish gain, 
but to humble ourselves as Jesus did, to make the Father known. Humble yourselves and be obedient to God, who, although he hung the stars in place, he gently and lovingly knits our every cells together and our DNA together to be his children. Now, don't get me wrong, this is a high calling. But be sure that as you look at the night sky, as you ponder the glorious, glorious vastness of God's creation, this same God came to us, created us, made us out of dust, and breathed in his nature, in his life, in his love into our hearts. This very God will be with you, is with you, will love you, will guide you, will call you his own. So as we come to the table now, we remember what it is that Jesus did for us. That because we had taken our crown and we forgot God, he could have and he should have ended us because of our sin. But meekly Jesus came. He laid down his crown. He set aside his glory to bring us back to him. That's what this table means. So for those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this is for you to remember that Jesus laid his crown down and came down, to, came down to be with us and save us. So let's remember this and let's humbly accept his forgiveness and let's live to glorify him always. Amen?